Welcome back, everybody, to The Luke Beasley Show. It is great to be with you, and it's great to be joined by Josiah from the Pondering Politics YouTube channel. Great to be with you once again. Great to be with you, sir. Appreciate the invitation. Excited to jump into this. Absolutely. We are making it a routine, so get used to seeing this guy's face. (laughs) All right. uh, Lots to discuss today, so let's dive right in. We have been hearing about the bombshell whistleblowers that the Republicans were going to bring forward. And this comes in different forms. One of them got lost. We talked about the big informant who was supposed to expose Joe Biden's corruption and the bribery scheme and all this. And they had all the evidence and then the Republicans misplaced them. And then also we heard a lot about whistleblowers from the GOP when it came to the uh, weaponization subcommittee in the House who is supposed to be making the case that the FBI, the federal government, in this case specifically the FBI, is being weaponized against conservatives. And I want to give you a taste of the quality of these whistleblowers. They're not technically whistleblowers, but that's what they're calling themselves and that's what the GOP is calling them. And I guess this is what we should have expected, this absurd um, of quality when it comes to their whistleblowers but it actually shocked me because we'll get into it both clips but first a quick uh, piece here from politico alan one of the whistleblowers allegedly failed to provide relevant information so this information comes from a letter that the fbi sent to this committee to explain why these two two of the whistleblowers that are being brought forward uh, why they had their security clearance taken away it wasn't because they're being persecuted for being conservative it's because Allen allegedly failed to provide relevant information as part of an investigation into individuals who were accused of engaging in criminal behavior in the Capitol on January 6th. Allen also, according to the FBI review, expressed sympathy for persons or organizations that advocate, threaten, or use force or violence or use any other legal or unconstitutional means in an effort to prevent federal government personnel from performing their official duties. And then... One of the other guys, meanwhile, a friend, according to that same letter, espoused an alternative narrative about the events of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, while describing to superiors why he would not participate in a search and arrest. He also, according to the letter, recorded a meeting with his superiors and took part in an unapproved interview with a Russian government news agency. His security clearance was revoked on May 16th. So, Josiah... (laughs) We're hearing the GOP out on this, right? Jim Jordan was supposed to bring forward these bombshell testimonies. And then we're supposed to feel bad that individuals or we're supposed to see it as the FBI being weaponized against conservatives because these guys lost their security clearance for not doing their job. In the case of a friend, I think it was his last name. He refused to participate in a search and arrest because of his views on January 6th. If you're not going to do your job, you shouldn't have the job. Yeah, the, the whole situation is kind of bizarre because if you watch the full weaponization subcommittee hearing, uh, and I watched most of it, basically the three witnesses who are whistleblowers, right, even though, again, that, that status is uh, contested to say the least, they basically make a case that as U.S. citizens, they're entitled to First Amendment protections, which is true, and that the FBI, that they're entitled rather to FBI employment while exercising those First Amendment uh, you know, constitutional rights, even if they're sympathizing with insurrectionists. And the reality is this, you are entitled 
to your First Amendment protections, which is why these gentlemen have not been arrested, right? But you are right. not entitled to employment for any law enforcement agency, let alone the premier law enforcement agency of the United States. So if during the course of your duties, you do things like express repeated sympathy for a group that invaded the US Capitol, threatened to hang the Vice President of the United States and tried to overthrow the government to install an unelected dictator as tyrant of the United States, you may lose your job at the FBI. You may have your security clearance revoked. That shouldn't be particularly controversial. This is an example of where certain conservatives and certain Republicans, they, they really struggle with this. Your right, your, your right to free speech does not entitle you to protection from the consequences. So yes. this is simply an example of the FBI just you know, following the natural consequences of you potentially being a security threat to the organization you work for. So uh, before we discuss further, a lot more to discuss on this, this is Democratic Representative Connolly uh, walking through what a third whistleblower had written on Twitter about January 6th. This is uh, George Hill's tweets. Take a look at this. can't speak to his claims. I do have the view that going out and, again, the idea, attacking someone saying, you haven't yet been given the magic wand of whistleblower status, I believe that's inappropriate. I don't, I'm not familiar with all of the substance of his personnel actions. Huh, well, might it cause you some concern? Let me show some tweets on the screen from Mr. Hill. Um, this one, um, he had theories about January 6th that it was instigated by the deep state, not by insurrectionists who were up to no good seeking to hang the vice president, Republican vice president, I might add, of the United States uh, or other depredations. It was the deep state that led to this. Are you familiar with that tweet? No. Um, here's another one. Um, are you familiar with this tweet uh, in which he talked again that the deep state is real uh, on the January 6th insurrection. Just to be clear, I'm not familiar with any of his tweets. We just believe that it can be helpful for people to have counsel, and we were willing to assist in that well, way. I say again, it just doesn't seem that controversial to, as a federal agency that's supposed to be enforcing the law, not love the idea of someone who believes in the deep state coordinating an attack on the Capitol to what? I never understand that conspiracy theory, to make MAGA look bad or to whatever. Um, I've tried to have at rallies, Trump towards explain to me, okay, so the Democratic Party actually with Pelosi coordinating with the deep state to make January 6th happen, make it look like Trump supporters to prevent the certification of Biden's election. Wait, what? Why would they want to do that? Um, and why would the FBI want to have someone who's supportive of those conspiracy theories about that attack on the Capitol in their ranks? They wouldn't. And, and, and again, it's, it's what we just talked about earlier. The fact of the matter is whether or not these three witnesses realize that they each made an affirmative case for why they should have been fired at, or at, at the bare minimum suspended, but perhaps just fired wholesale, let alone having their security clearance revoked. These so often, conservatives try to make the case that, listen, when the FBI or when law enforcement agencies crack down on us for certain extremist belief, it's because we're conservative. It's actually, no, it's because you're extremist. Yes, you are a conservative extremist, but it's the extremism yep. that's, that's getting you, you know, in trouble. If you were simply sharing memes about wanting to cut taxes for the rich, 
or you know a robust uh, defense budget. Those are conservative uh, beliefs, conservative parts of conservative ideology that you would not suffer any consequences for at the FBI. But when you express sympathy for, again, a group that invaded the United States Capitol to try to kill or hurt members of Congress and the vice president of the United States because he wouldn't overturn an election, you have gone beyond the pale of just conservative beliefs, which again, there's, there's a wide range there, into the unacceptable. And the FBI is not obligated to keep you on payroll. 100 uh, percent another moment here from this hearing the democrats just did a great job of making the case for why all of this this whistleblower nonsense is just not what the gop is hyping it up um to be at all and this is democratic representative debbie wasserman schultz you also claim that your top secret security clearance was improperly revoked yet an independent investigation concluded that you demonstrated a number of security concerns which included that you refused to execute a court-ordered arrest warrant and when you downloaded documents from intelligence systems to an unauthorized removable flash drive. The cherry on top could be your unauthorized recording of executive management, which I'm sure you know violates Florida law, along with your unsanctioned interviews with Sputnik News established by the Russian government in 2014 and fully owned by the Kremlin and Putin's cronies. I'm the gentleman Think it's expired. clear who I'm is weaponizing government. Gentlemen from back. the gentleman so so true before we discuss any further just one more moment i want to look at this is democratic representative stacy plaskett um also making a very accurate uh case here here we are on police week watching house republicans jump to lay the foundation to defund law enforcement my colleagues on the far right are on a mission to attack, discredit, and ultimately dismantle the FBI. This is defund the police on steroids. As part of their mission, my colleagues have brought in these former agents, men who lost their security clearances because they were a threat to our national security, who out of malice or ignorance or both have put partisan agenda above the oath they swore to serve this country and protect its national security. That's the other part of this. For how long were we told as the left that you are going to defund the police? You want to defund the police because of a pretty small portion of the left that um, wanted to do that. And that was something the right freaked out about constantly. But see, in the case of defund the police at least it was in response to an actual real problem and then they were putting forward what i saw and see as an incorrect policy uh solution here they're inventing this problem and then the solution is defund federal law enforcement defund the police they what they were so against for so long are now pro defund the police because of a made-up story about a weaponized fbi yeah, I mean, again, it, it just underscores the hypocrisy and the Republican Party's superpower. Uh, actually, they have a few. They have a few advantages in the modern political landscape. Uh, certainly not popularity. It's certainly not um, a record of governance, right? Democrats are the better governing party. They are generally the more popular party with more popular policies. But one of the things that enables Republicans to win as often as they do is the shamelessness of their hypocrisy. They, they are not held to account by one another or very often their constituents. So you look at the situation with defund the police. 
it is true that during the 2020 George Floyd protests, there was a vocal element of the population and uh, within the ranks of the Democratic Party, very, very few uh, who were calling for uh, police agencies to be uh, defunded or in some cases even abolished. But the first things first, those sentiments were infinitely more understandable coming from progressives and you know uh, members of the community who were just fed up because they witnessed the unarmed uh, or the murder of an unarmed black man, right? Which happens unfortunately too often in this country. That's an infinitely more sympathetic and understandable sentiment than conservatives and Republicans wanting to defund the police simply because you know, those police agencies are doing their job and cracking down on extremists who just so happen to be very often conservative, number one. Number two, the fact of the matter is you have to look, when you look at like extremist elements within a movement, social movement or political movement, they're going to be there in one form or another, right? You can't have any mass social or political movement on any scale. Look at the civil rights movement. It had its extremists. You can't have an extremist free movement. The question is, to what extent does that extremist element animate the movement? And to what extent is it represented in the leadership? Yes. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, they were not calling for defunding the police or abolishing the police or anything like that. So it didn't really have a presence in the Democratic Party's leadership, whereas this brand of extremism from the right, it is riddled in the GOP's leadership. You have Jim Jordan, you have Donald Trump and people in Donald Trump's orbit calling for the dismantling of the FBI and the ATF and other things as well. That it's a huge asymmetry here. They are not comparable. 100%. And this is something you and I talk about or complain about a lot. There are so many in our current political environment who actually do get bought into the idea that, yeah, well, I mean, okay, the right's bad, but I mean, I saw some of these videos of annoying people who say that they're on the left, so kind of, uh, that's both the bad. And while, yes, there are dumb people, there are extreme people on both sides all the time, of course, as you were saying, you must look at how does that manifest itself to positions of power? How many Democratic lawmakers believe the things that you take issue with about the left. How many Republican lawmakers, in comparison, uh, hold views that are so radical? And that's why in this moment, breaking news, we talk a lot about the radical right wing because it is driving the GOP right now. I call it the engine of the GOP because of how it drives the agenda and the actions of uh, the party. And those views, those extremist views, are absolutely showing up in positions of power. An example is um, all the people we talk about on a daily basis, whether it be Marjorie Green, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, etc. But even I covered recently Trump calling into who is likely going to be the nominee of one of the two major parties for the presidential ticket. He called into a QAnon event. It, I don't think it was labeled technically as a QAnon event, but people were getting up there espousing those exact views and he called into it associating himself with those people so that is why the far right is the uh significant threat and the danger that we uh talk about on a daily basis that it is yeah it, it, it's just fundamentally dishonest of anybody to suggest that simply because a problem is technically present on uh, two sides of an issue that that problem is equally present, right? Um, that that it's an equal number and an equal threat. It's just it's unfortunately a 
it's a lazy thought. It's a lazy sentiment often expressed by people who know better but want to pretend otherwise because they have an agenda or people who, for whatever reason, you know, just don't have the time, effort, energy or interest to dig deeper. It's just, oh, well, you know, both sides. The fact of the matter is whether people like it or not, if you're taking an honest reflection of American contemporary politics, um, the extremism that we're talking about is much, much more prevalent on the right than the left. And I will also conclude by saying this. When we're talking about politicians and defunding the police, it occurs to me that uh, when President Biden was inaugurated, his first major piece of legislation was the American Rescue Plan, which was the third round of COVID stimulus relief. That passed on a sheer partisan line. Only Democrats voted for it. And in that COVID stimulus relief bill was ample funding uh, to law enforcement agencies across the country. So it was Democrats who voted to fund the police state, local, and federal police made that available to the police. And it was Republicans, every single Republican in the House of Representatives and the Congress who voted against it. So when it comes time to actually voting, not just saying things on Twitter, like you said, but when it yep. comes time to actually putting your money where your mouth is, it's Democrats who back the police and Republicans who do not. Absolutely. Uh, you have our next story for us, Josiah. Hit I us sure with do. it. So the situation is effectively this, I guess, before we jump into the tweet itself. So it concerns the debt ceiling. And I know that for a lot of people, the debt ceiling isn't quite as, um, it's not meme worthy. It's not typically not the stuff of memes or viral moments because it's it's so um, so technical. And in many ways, it's abstract to a lot of people. It's like, oh, the, you know, the federal debt, you know, how does that affect me on a day-to-day -day basis? But the situation is this. Once again, the United States has hit the debt ceiling limit, which is the congressional limit we impose on ourselves that says that the Treasury can't borrow more than that in order to pay the nation's bills. I want to clarify this because a lot of people to this day uh, misunderstand this. This has nothing to do with future budgets. It has nothing to do with paying future bills. It has nothing to do with the spending priorities of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. This is about paying bills, letting the Treasury pay bills that previous Congresses, including under the Trump administration, have demanded that the Treasury pay. Yep. That's where we are. The debt ceiling has been raised 80 times in the past 63 years, and the vast majority of them have been raised by Republican administrations, more about 50 times of the 80. So it's more likely to happen under Republican administrations than Democrat. That's another fact to keep in your back pocket. But at the end of the day, it's Congress which approves the raising of the debt ceiling. The president can't do anything about it. But we're seeing this ongoing back and forth, Luke, as I know you've covered, and I know I've covered on my channel, where Republicans are saying, listen, Mr. President, we're not going to raise the debt ceiling to let Treasury pay for bills that we helped authorize under you and, yes, under a Republican president, Donald Trump, unless you agree to make concessions about future spending. And the Treasury is at the point, Luke, we're getting like, I think it's 11 or 12 days where the Treasury will officially run out of money to pay our bills, which will trigger a default, could cost the American people 8 million jobs, $15 trillion in household wealth, your insurance premiums, your mortgages, the stock market, they would all implode. This would have a severe impact on the rich, the poor, the right, the left, everybody. So why do I bring all of that up? Because they're in ongoing negotiations, uh, Republicans are with the president. And they were supposed to meet on Friday for the latest round of negotiations. 
Donald Trump, the current leader of the Republican Party, made a what do we call it? A trough central. He troughed. <laughs> he troughed minutes into the meeting that the Republicans had with the White House. And he said this. Republicans should not make a deal on the debt ceiling unless they get everything they want, including the kitchen sink. That's the way the Democrats have always dealt with us. Do not fold. Now, you think you might think to yourself, well, I mean, that's whatever. He just ran his mouth. What does that mean? But here's what happened, Luke. Within 20 minutes after he troughed that, the Republicans walked out of the White House negotiations walked out. I want to play a couple of clips here um, about Kevin McCarthy. But before I do, just out of curiosity, do you find that timing suspicious? Very suspicious. And I think whether or not this specific situation was because of that, that troth, as you called it, um, that true central post, true central, now I'm messing up, true social um, post. <laughs> Definitely. Trump is in in control in so many ways despite not actually being in technically a position of power right now and that continues to be a very concerning element of politics 100 percent. this man is out of power but he's still leveraging way too much influence yeah. over the gop in terms of their negotiations so i want to play a clip here from speaker of the house kevin mccarthy let's hear what he has to say after republicans left the negotiations with the white house Well, we, we've got to get movement by the White House, and we don't have any movement yet. So, um, yeah, we've got to pop. What's the holding The tone seemed really optimistic yesterday. Is it? Some yeah, I mean, yesterday, yesterday, yesterday I really felt we were at the location where I could see the path. The, the White House is just, look, we can't be spending more money next year. We have to spend less than we spent the year before. It's pretty easy. What are some of the things we said? We spoke to the president? No, we didn't talk to the president. Any Hi. This whole process, I'm just deeply, deeply annoyed with and afraid about because it is a manufactured crisis. And so I've, I've heard some uh, political commentators kind of wave it off as, ah, this is nonsense. It's not actually what they're making it out to be because it's manufactured. Like you said, the debt ceiling inherently is. It's not constitutional. It's nothing we would have to have. Um, but also the Republicans leveraging it to try to get their spending cuts. And so in that sense, it is artificial. But in in a very real sense, if Republicans keep playing with fire, it could have devastating consequences. And so watching, uh, I've said it before, something to the effect of dishonesty by itself is really annoying, just even if it's over nothing. Oh, I didn't eat the candy bar, but you did. But dishonesty, when uh, you're using it to cover for really bad actions that you're taking or really bad positions that you have, and the outcome of your dishonesty could end up being so devastating in the lives of people that brings it to another level yeah it does i mean it, it's not just dishonesty for its own sake it's dishonesty with extreme consequences for yep. 330 million americans and again this is the funny thing i say funny of, of, of course i mean it's terrifying it's not going to be simply people in blue states or blue cities that suffer the consequences of the gop's brinksmanship here it's going to be conservative uh, states and, and and red cities as well. It's going to, again, rich, poor, left, right, it doesn't matter. Your savings are at stake, your 401k is at stake, your job is at stake. And 
Congress is the only one here with the power to raise the debt ceiling if that's the, the means by which we're going to do this. If, if we really need to raise, suspend, or abolish the debt ceiling, the president can't do anything about it. And the president has agreed, look, Democrats, we will sign a clean debt ceiling raise today because that's a responsible thing to do. Um, but I also want to play a second clip, Luke. And, and actually, it's interesting. You may know the fella who found this clip. Um, I found it. Uh, it looks like uh, a clip by a gentleman named Luke Beasley found this clip. Uh, in which one of the finest political minds of the modern mm, era, I might add. Hearing. Yes, thank you. Yes, and um, it, it's actually it's Kevin McCarthy arguing with Kevin McCarthy, if you can believe it. So I'd like to play this clip for you, and uh, then let's unpack it. When you raise the debt ceiling, that's actually paying for stuff that has already been spent. Democrats have floated changing the debt ceiling process, so there's not... We can just spend more and more. Why they want to raise this is to spend more money. When you raise the debt ceiling, that's actually paying... Well said, uh, 2017 Kevin McCarthy. And we could spend an entire show talking about cases of politicians on both sides, but often, very, very often politicians on the GOP side just being not logically consistent at all, making no effort to be. And that's what makes it hard to engage. How do we have conversations about, okay, why do you feel this way based on the principles that you have? Because you can bring forward and say, I feel this way because of these principles. And the next day go, oh wait, but it would be benefit me to switch them around. So never mind. I feel this way because of the opposite principles. So then how do you how do you compromise? How do you come to an agreement if you can't even understand their views because their views are all wonky? No, 100% they are. At the end of the day, um, the Republican Party has become a party not about principle but about power. And mm. they'll forsake they'll forsake principle on the altar of power any day, which is why clips like these come in handy. Um, obviously, that's not going to do much for his base, you know, because, again, the, the unfortunate reality is many conservative voters – are happy with this. They're fine with this. They love, we saw it during the Trump CNN town hall. They love his rank hypocrisy because they see it as a sign of strength. Um, and that's what I meant earlier, you know, in a previous clip uh, video that we did when we were talking about um, the fact that the GOP superpower is their shamelessness. Mm. They are not held to that standards. Can you imagine what the headlines would be, not just on right-wing media, but mainstream social media, the so-called left media, if you got clips of Joe Biden going back and forth with himself like this that we just had with Kevin McCarthy, people would be you know, you know, swinging pitchforks, so to speak. It'd be an angry mob about it. Yeah. But the GOP can get away with it. At the end of the day, um, this brinkmanship is pretty much the exclusive province of the Republican Party. We've never seen Democrats do anything like this. And that's why my hope is, and the hope has taken a beating here lately because we're starting to see movement <laughs> against this, but my hope is that President Biden stays strong as he promised to do for the past two or three months, which says, listen, we will sign a clean debt ceiling, the same sort of debt ceilings that you got under Donald Trump, uh, the same sort of debt ceilings that you demand of Democrats when it's your guy in the White House. Uh, we'll do that because we understand that we helped you know, number one, that the economic consequences would be severe, but number two, that we have an obligation since we helped authorize these payments, but so did you. What we will not do is negotiate. And so 
What I hope is that Biden stays strong in this respect. And if Republicans don't back down, that he looks at unorthodox, unconventional means like minting the billion or trillion dollar coin or invoking the 14th Amendment to simply say, listen, we're going to raise the debt ceiling or or we're going to pay regardless. We are going to pay the bills that Congress has authorized us to pay. And if you don't like it, you can try to sue me in the Supreme Court. Um, and then it will be up to you in the Supreme Court to see if you guys want to order us into a default. That's what I hope happens here. Totally agree. And we've seen now, especially this round of this whole charade, uh, a good bit of constitutional ac experts come out and say, Biden actually has on good authority to, um, in his position as president, push forward and not allow us to default on our debt. That's his responsibility. So I think if you're ever kind of as a leader, especially in the Democratic Party, often they don't go with what I'm about to say. If you're on the fence about do I go for kind of the the less aggressive stance or the more aggressive, let's go for it. We've been uh, watching as the Republican Party, as uh, Josiah mentioned, has picked power over principle for so long. So in a situation where you could have the principle, but also leverage your power effectively and aggressively, as often the GOP um, is willing to do, then do it. Show the American people, Joe Biden, that you're fighting on behalf of them in every way that you can. And when you actually have a case to be made that this is your constitutional duty, then do it. And uh, again, as Josiah said, let Republicans try to take you to court and try to um, cause an economic disaster because of what? And I do want to mention, I had a um, an individual say to me that they absolutely resonate with the calling out Republicans and they resonate with what I say on the show, but reminded me to not just talk about what we're calling out, which is the dishonesty, which is all that, but why it's important to call it out. And so the why here is these are real lives. It's sometimes a little bit of a reality TV show and Kevin McCarthy, oh gosh, and then there's villains. But these are real lives that are at stake here. And again, I remind you, why is it that the GOP is trying to leverage the debt ceiling, raising the debt ceiling? Uh, because they're trying to get spending cuts. And then you dive into what the cuts would be doing. What would be the impact of these spending cuts if they got their way? One of them is trying to add work requirements to uh, Medicaid and then raise the work requirements age for uh, SNAP benefits the food stamps from 50 to 56. And when this has been tried in states such as Arkansas and when studies have been done, it's not an effective way to do what the GOP is saying that it would do, which is make sure people who absolutely can and should be working are, are working. Instead, what it does effectively do is take away benefits from people who absolutely need it and aren't incorrectly identifying themselves as someone who qualifies. And the reason for that countless reasons, bureaucratic, a mistake gets made, or uh, the extra paperwork that goes through this type of process and ends up getting messed up, not turned into the right place, whatever it is. And then people who need SNAP, who need Medicaid, end up not getting it. And so all of this, leveraging the debt ceiling on the part of the Republican Party, is to attempt, and I know this sounds really blunt, but it's just accurate, to take food out of the hands of those at the... Uh, in low-income families, the food, food out of low-income families, and healthcare out of the hands of low-income people. It is so enraging, and this matters so much, but they don't see it that way. Moving on, uh, Lauren Boebert responded to the Durham report in 
Lauren Boebert fashion. She's not exactly known for her wise analysis, and that definitely made itself uh, made itself known in the clip I'm about to show you. We'll go through, in case you missed some of this, the Durham report and why what Lauren Boebert is saying in this clip is so absurd. But she thinks the FBI, based on what was outlined in the Durham report, is guilty of treason. Oh, my goodness. Take a look at uh, this from Lauren Boebert. This is nothing but treason, mm. Chad. And mm. the Durham report reveals uh, outrageous levels of corruption, and it makes it clear that the FBI targeted President Trump to help Crooked Hillary win an election. I think he's retired that name. Uh, <laughs> it's now Crooked Biden. He said he's given it to him. But, I mean, this is, this is what the FBI... Um, was doing, and, and I mean, I would call this treason. I would call this election interference. The mainstream media ran with it. Obama was briefed on it. Uh, Joe Biden was briefed on it. Hillary Clinton obviously knew. Uh, there has to be accountability here. I really wonder, uh, Josiah, <laughs> all these people on the right who are talking about the Durham report and saying what it means, have any of them read it? <laughs> No, absolutely not. It's, it's it's 306 pages. Are you kidding me? And I don't think there are any illustrations in it. So that oh my probably gosh. that probably means that Lauren Bober has not read it. Um, yeah, but I mean, as as you alluded to in the introduction of the clip, the Durham report is a nothing burger. Just real quick. I mean, it, it basically regurgitates the findings of the. Uh, Inspector General Horowitz report, uh, the Republican Marco Rubio-led report uh, from the Senate Subcommittee on Intelligence, the Mueller report as well. It was a witch hunt uh, to try to discredit investigation into the inappropriate, the wildly inappropriate relationship between the Trump campaign and Trump administration and Russia. And even everything Durham found, um, you know, there were zero indictments in that report, zero criminal referrals in that report. He never comes out and says that, you know, the FBI shouldn't have opened any sort of investigation into that relationship between Trump and Russia. And he makes no sweeping recommendations for structural changes to the FBI either. So I don't know what they're looking for. And let me quickly, quickly remind people in case you are kind of blurry, uh, the Mueller report kind of original investigate, not the Mueller report, Mueller investigation, original investigation, the kind of this all spawned off of, um, and this was an investigation into the connection between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. And um, what ended up being found, as you might remember, is the fact that indeed Russia did attempt to interfere in the 2016 election. And indeed, there were really inappropriate relationships between Trump campaign officials and people in Russia associated with or in the Russian uh, government. What the Mueller investigation, this, um, this process did not end up uncovering was a direct coordination and conspiracy between the Trump campaign, Trump, and uh, uh, these individuals in Russia to interfere. But the, the uh, Trump campaign was obviously okay with the interference on their behalf. And so then, because Trump was very unhappy with that investigation, uh, his attorney general, William Barr, appointed a special counsel, John Durham, to investigate the investigators, investigate this um, investigation and see if it was politically motivated, if it was just an attempt to interfere in the election. What we were promised by MAGA, again, just kind of walking you through to recap, was that this would be the crime of the century that was about to be uncovered by John Durham. This would be the moment where we all learn that Trump 
had the election almost stolen from him, but he prevailed still. And the FBI was trying to steal the election from Trump and was trying to hurt him politically and all of that. John Durham had years, I think it was four years, right, to investigate this. And the two individuals he brought to trial, it ended in acquittal. He had one plea deal, but the two people who were brought to trial, they ended in acquittal. He didn't uncover this criminality. And in his report, he didn't even allege that the FBI was attempting because of their political motivation to interfere in the election. He just took issue with parts of the investigation and mistakes that were made, which fair enough, mistakes will be made in an investigation. Um, and now, I think before they even had a chance to read it, they were already ready to say, this uncovered what we said that it did. Yeah, if you, it's, it's so funny to watch a, a timeline and I'm hoping, maybe we ought to do it. Maybe we need to put our heads together and just like find all the clips and collate it. If mm. not, I'm sure people at MSNBC have done it already, but the watching, tracking the progression of the total depletion of morale in the Republican Party from when the Durham report, excuse me, the Durham investigation began until now is so hilarious to track. Because like you said, you know, Donald Trump and his sycophants were saying this is going to uncover the crime of the century. This is it. Democrats, we got you now. We got you, crooked FBI. And then as the years passed, every time Fox News or OAN or Newsmax would be like, guys, so what about uh, what about that Durham thing? You can just see the the Demo or excuse me the Republican senators and Congress people kind of looking at their feet. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of losing faith to be honest with you, and in large part because, like you said, the the two uh, attempts by John Durham to bring convictions against people in trial, he lost. That's not a good win loss record, right? Whereas with the Mueller report, there were 30 plus indictments brought and multiple convictions. So a much mm -hmm. better win loss record. Durham wasn't up to the task, even though he had twice the time to make his case. And as you said, he was under intense pressure from Attorney General Barr, who in turn was under intense pressure from Donald Trump to find fault, find fault, find something that we can use here. But I'll remind everybody both the Trump Department of Justice Inspector General report led by Horowitz and the Republican Marco Rubio led Senate Select Intelligence Committee report both concluded that though there were issues with the FBI's investigation, particularly related to FISA warrants, uh, they did not find any evidence whatsoever of a political inappropriate political motivation. So at the end of the day, it is simply a fact, no matter how Professor Jonathan Turley and other, again, Republican mouthpieces in the media and, again, sitting members of the Republican Party try to spin it. This is a nothing burger, which is why in the very end, this report brought zero criminal referrals, zero indictments and zero sweeping structural changes to the FBI. Totally agree. And one other clip I want to look at while we're on this subject, the reason why, or at least I, I often speculate, the reason why that term treason is so often used, oh, Pelosi's guilty of treason, that the FBI is guilty of treason, Biden's guilty of treason. It's a little bit of a dog whistle or um, it's alluding to something that a lot of MAGA who listening to Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Greene, whoever's saying that, are tuned into. And this is a clip of Marjorie Greene saying Pelosi is guilty of treason. And you'll hear what she says the punishment for treason uh, is. She's a traitor to our country. She's guilty of treason. She took an oath to protect American citizens and uphold our laws. And she gives aid and comfort to our enemies who illegally invade our land. That's what treason is. And by our law, representatives and senators can be kicked out and no longer serve in our government. 
and it's a it's a crime punishable by death is what treason is nancy pelosi is guilty of treason and we want her out of our government she's held her so there i mean how, how much more transparent can you get with a call to violence saying Pelosi's guilty of treason. Treason's punishable by death. I mean, it's just so dangerous. And so then, do I know for sure? Everyone's aware of that being the conversation about that word among the right wing. And obviously, that's what's hyping up MAGA when they hear that. I don't know if Lauren Bowers thinking about that in the moment, but that most likely is why that term is being used. It's a reference to the absolute most severe form of violence. Yeah, I, I would simply say <laughs> the operative phrase was was Lauren Boebert thinking. If you're a betting man, probably <laughs> not. But I do think that if Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene were ever to put any serious thought into anything, it would be thoughts of violence and execution against their political opponents. And so this is nothing new. This is radical rhetoric. Again, the likes of which you simply don't see in equal amounts on the left or in the Democratic Party. I remember when Republicans clutched their pearls over when uh, uh, Maxine Waters, the Democratic Congresswoman said, you need to get in their faces and protest, which, you know, again, if you wanna make the case that that is escalatory rhetoric, fair enough, but that certainly doesn't necessarily imply violence, let alone death. And here you have Marjorie Taylor Greene just flat out saying it. So that this is again where on this show, you know, on my show, on your show, on everything, we have to remind people, reject the asymmetry of expectation. The fact of the matter is there is no equivalence between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in terms of extremist rhetoric. It is infinitely worse in the Republican Party, and you have to acknowledge that. You have our next story for us, Josiah? I sure do. This one is, it pertains to... um, it's state politics, as a matter of fact. It's uh, it's not necessarily on a federal level, but it's such a powerful story that I do want to share uh, an article um, from uh, the Washington Post about the situation in Nebraska. So what we have here is the legislative session in Nebraska has been um, – it's been filibusted by Democrats. They've actually, for many, many months, they have attempted to filibust um, any bill by Republicans or Democrats because Republicans are attempting to pass a very regressive um, uh, anti-trans bill. They were trying to ban gender-affirming care for minors. And you see this in multiple red states, so it's really nothing new. The Republican Party is is making a full court press in every state they possibly can, Luke. But what makes this weird in Nebraska is Democrats have successfully filibustered for months. They were making conservatives and Republicans pay for every inch. They were going out of their way to, to say that, listen, you may end up getting these bills passed, but it's going to be an excruciating experience for you. We are going to grind the legislature in Nebraska to a halt. But the clip I want to play in particular um, was from a, a, a Republican, or excuse me, a Democrat, no, an independent, it wasn't even a Democrat. She caucuses with Democrats, but she herself is technically independent. Um, and she gives this very heartfelt speech that I have not heard um, anything like it in contemporary politics within recent memory. So I'd like to play this clip and hear what uh, you all have to think about it. 
graduation. I hate that for you. I'm so sorry. Seriously, I, I would hate to have that happen to me. And I'm happy you're listening because I'm only asking you, we are only here doing this because of LB 574 period. I am not asking you to sit here through late nights to vote on these bills that we're dragging out. I'm asking you to love your family more than you hate mine. I'm asking you to love your family more than you hate mine. If your family wants you home to recover from surgery, maybe you should do that. If you want to go see your grandson graduate from preschool, you should do that. Instead, you are here to drag out this session because you won't come off this bill that hurts my son. You hate him more than you love your own family, and that's why you're here. And so, you know, go to the graduation. Go recover from your surgery. We don't need you here. We need you to vote no or present not voting on 574 because, you know, there's nothing else in this body that's affecting your family that way. Mm. Wow. Powerful stuff. I, I do, I do want to provide just a bit of context here specifically yeah, to that clip before you give your thoughts. So that was, again, an independent Nebraska senator, Megan Hunt, who has a trans son. And what she was referring to was, again, initially, Democrats were able to successfully filibust this anti-trans gender-affirming care bill successfully. But it got so much media attention and so much publicity that conservatives and Republicans in the state were really spitefully motivated. And I'll, I'll get into exactly what I mean there. So Republicans paired this gender-affirming care bill with another conservatively popular uh, anti-abortion bill that was going to try to ban abortion at six weeks. It failed. So Republicans thought, okay, how are we going to get this stuff through, especially when we're running out of time? So they increased the, the window to 12 weeks. It's still a very draconian 12-week abortion ban. And they paired it with the bill against gender-affirming care. So there was a hybrid bill. It got the 33 additional votes it needed to break the filibuster. And this is what Megan Hunt is responding to because two of the Republican senators, Luke, one of them was complaining, I had to miss my grandchild's preschool graduation. Another one had recently had surgery and against the wishes of his physician and his family went into the state house to vote for a ban against gender-affirming care, and an abortion ban at 12 weeks. So that's what she's responding to, that level of spite. So what, do, what are your thoughts on all of this? Absolutely incredible on her part. Uh, and I think sometimes Democrats, she's, as you mentioned, technically independent, but um, liberals fall into, not that it's always bad, but too much of civility politics, caring too much about trying to even on serious issues staying respectful which is admirable a lot of times but what that does is it sometimes gets in the way of people responding in a justified manner and making sure they're speaking in a way that is aligned with the moment and there she didn't mince words she didn't avoid saying what she meant those lawmakers they do 
whether or not they think they feel it in their heart, their actions are putting upon her son uh, hate. And that's the priority more than she's able, uh, than these lawmakers are able to prioritize their, their own family. They're prioritizing going after this lawmaker's son. Remind me of her name really quickly. Megan Hunt. Megan Hunt's son. They're prioritizing that action over these important moments in their own lives and their own families' lives. And one of the things I said during a past segment, either about that Florida lawmaker who called trans people demons, that's the word he used, demons and mutants, this Florida state lawmaker. And then a different one who said some bizarre statement going up, terrorists, that well, they hate gay people more than we do, even more than we do. And one of the things I said was, I really wonder if, and I, I beg for some of these lawmakers to just wonder for a moment how it feels not to be them, but to be the subject of their demonization and to be the subject of their policy decisions. Because I think sometimes the only um, equation that's going on in their head is how does this affect me politically? Okay, right now the Republican base is really hyped about these anti-LGBTQ actions. And okay, so that's good, check. And then maybe, yeah, I don't really like the idea of gender affirming care, so that's check. And then maybe, for many of them, there's some deep-seated hate there um, as well, and it's motivating their actions. Okay, but add to that equation what it must feel like to be the person you're going after, to be the, uh, like I said, subject of your hatred. How does it feel to look up at, in the example of this Florida lawmaker who called trans people demons, um, someone who's supposed to be your leader, and they're saying that about you, just for, for who you are. And it's unimaginable. And I wish people would, who are pushing for these actions would resonate with that. I have a lot more to say, but jump in here, Josiah. No, I, again, I think you hit the nail on the head. The, 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 the salient point that she made, um, and again, you emphasize it too, is this idea that, you know, Republicans are supposed to be the party of family values. And we see them betray, like elected Republicans betray that reputation time and time again. How many times has an elected Republican been caught for a verifiably non-family value scandal one time after another? Trump even, found liable of sexual abuse recently, yeah. Right. Yeah. You have the leader of the Republican Party who is, you know, a serial philanderer, right, um, now being found liable by a jury of his peers for sexual abuse and defamation. That certainly doesn't comport itself with family values. But even that aside, you take a situation like this in Nebraska. As far as we know, there are no crimes being committed at this moment, at least legal crimes by uh, the Republican Party. But the lack of family values, not only the lack of family values, the betrayal of family values in a situation like this. So you, you have an example of two Republican senators in the Nebraska State House, one of whom had the opportunity to see her grandchild graduate from preschool, which you would assume would be like an affirmative family values event. And then another one who underwent surgery and was <coughs> within the company of his family trying to recover. The, the family values approach would have been, okay, if, if given the choice between legislating my hate or spending time with a loved one, go spend time with a loved one. Or if given the choice between legislating my hate towards, again, a, a minority group, a marginalized group, or recuperating from a physically taxing surgery in the comfort of my family, that you would do that instead. So 
we are seeing on just so many levels a betrayal time and time again of family values by Republican elected officials. And you're so right. Another example of this is all of the advocacy for the book bannings um, and for some of the stances on COVID and children shouldn't be forced to do this, that, and the other thing had to do with parental rights, parental rights, parental rights, parental rights. That's what they said, right? And now they are actively taking away the rights of parents to support their trans youth. I, I want to remind people, of course, the narrative they'll go with is this is children who are, you know, we heard recently Don Jr. say three-year-olds who are having their genitals cut off and stories about what's going on. In reality, you have things like puberty blockers at the be beginning, sort of, um, after extensive consultation. And this is a really interesting thing to focus in on because number one, it's reversible. And number two, puberty blockers are something that trans youth take and cis youth take when they start puberty too early. So that gives you a sense of if a parent under some of these laws were to go in and go through the proper processes and have their doctor prescribe puberty blockers to their child. If their child started puberty too early that, early, that would be legal. They would allow the medical experts and the parents and the child to make the decision on that. But if it was because they were trans, we can't trust parents and medical experts to make decisions um, about children. It's a violation of the parental rights thing. And then, of course, they'll... Uh, work here so hard they'll push and push after all of this filibustering and finally successfully get this uh, legislation through because they want to protect the kids right oh the kids are being gone after by the radical rainbow mafia or whatever we hear and they'll work so hard to do that but when it comes to the leading cause of death for children they won't uh, burn one calorie trying to get through legislation to regulate uh, guns, which are the leading cause of death for children in the United States. So all of it, like you said, it's violation after violation of their own purported principles. Yeah. And, and it's also, you know, an exercise in hypocrisy in two other ways that you highlighted too. So the first one is the Republican Party's distrust of psychiatric and medical authorities, the same psychiatric, anytime that a Republican uh, voter, Republican uh, legislator, or Republican politician of any kind goes to a therapist or a psychiatrist. Odds are, if they're doing so here in the United States, the person to whose authority they're deferring is somebody who in turn defers to the authority of the American Psychiatric Association. When they go to take their children to uh, uh, to a physician, they're probably, you know, it's a physician who's under the purview or seeking the authority of the American Pediatrics Association. When they themselves go to the doctor, you know, for the flu or a broken bone or whatever, they're going to a doctor who gets their guidance from the, uh, yeah, you, you understand the American yeah. Medical Association. Yeah. It's so the same authorities that they put themselves and their children, uh, you know, at, at the, at, to the authority of in every other context, except when it comes to trans issues, it, it's so bizarre. And then the second hypocrisy is like you said, when it comes to second amendment rights and, Republicans are so concerned about guns and Second Amendment issues. They care more about that than the right of a second grader to make it to the third grade, right? That, that's, that's the frustrating thing. So, and again, mm -hmm. we, we we've talked about this, and this will be a recurring theme. 
many Republicans, especially Republican politicians, don't care because they're not held accountable for their hypocrisy. So why should they hold themselves accountable for it? But it is important to point out because maybe one of you watching will hear this and find the right combination of words where others have failed and successfully persuade that Republican voter or that Republican politician to really reconsider. So it's still worth pointing out. Moving on to our next story, Governor of Florida Ron DeSantis is going to make it official very soon, announcing his uh, 2024 presidential run. He'll be going up against Trump, of course, who right now is most likely to get the nomination. We'll see if DeSantis can mix things up. I've said it before, before we get to a clip here of this being outlined, he's likely going to file paperwork next week with an announcement shortly after um, making himself an official candidate. I do not want when thinking about DeSantis or Trump, either of those individuals to be president of the United States, that would be disastrous. But I love the idea of DeSantis getting in the race to hopefully cause some division within the party. And maybe um, those divisions won't be able to be reconciled in the general election within the Republican Party. And that will hurt them against, um, obviously, most most likely Joe Biden as the nominee on the Democratic side. So with that being said, we'll discuss further. I'll bring it aside in just a second. But first, here's this being reported on from CNN. Just tell CNN, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis expected to make it official next week, officially entering the 2024 presidential race sometime next week. He'll file paperwork with the Federal Election Commission declaring his candidacy and is expected to make his official announcement from his hometown the following week. DeSantis, just tell CNN. So there it goes. Uh, we've been waiting for quite a while now, and we'll see how that all plays out. Where do you stand on the whole DeSantis candidacy? Do you think he has a chance of really taking away support from Trump, or is it more just kind of a mix things up moment? Well, he certainly doesn't have my vote, <laughs> but none yeah. of them do. Um, you know, I, I think at this point, um, I almost wonder if it's too little too late. Um, it's interesting. You look at the rock, paper, scissors effect of like of, of politics, because if Ron DeSantis had gotten the nomination, which I suppose he might, he stands something of a chance, not much of one these days, but he certainly stands the best chance besides Trump. If he were to get the Republican nomination, you and I have talked about this before publicly and privately, we're pretty sure that Donald Trump is enough of a narcissist and a spiteful egotist that he would run as a third party independent spoiler candidate just to spite DeSantis, right? Um, so it's interesting to imagine the alternative situation in which, you know, Trump gets the nomination as, as he's likely to do. Would DeSantis drop out of the Republican nomination and run as a third party spoiler? I doubt it. But basically, no matter what happens, I want these two to trip over each other. And yeah. there's the possibility that that could happen. But I don't know. I, I, I at the end of the day, I, DeSantis has a problem. Well, he has many problems. One of the big ones is, you know, he's running so far to the right. He's the he's the right wing culture warrior. He's going to protect your gas stoves. He's going to, you know, belly punch Disney. Mickey Mouse. Yeah, right. He's going to he's going to do all these things that doesn't resonate with most Americans. And then on the the major matters of policy, not just culture war talking points, but like abortion laws. Right. He's running as far right as he can possibly get on the issue of abortion. That's not going to do him any favors with the general electorate. And that's that's the thing that's actually really interesting. It'll be interesting to see a reality check for Republicans, because, as I've said before, not that everything in life is a popularity contest, not that simply because a thing is popular, that makes it right. But at the end of the day, 
the Democratic Party and Democratic-leaning voters and Democratic policies. They are all more popular and more plentiful than the Republican Party. So if, DeSantis, if there's a little voice in DeSantis's head saying, listen, run as far right, as long as we lock in the GOP vote, we're going to you know, moonwalk into the White House on you know, January 2025. It's not going to happen, man. They just don't have the numbers. Yeah. Uh, do you have the New York Times piece on you there? For me to I jump do. into real quick? Okay, we're going to read this and then a lot more to say on what Josiah just noted there. So one bit of reporting that came out kind of around the same time um, is this from the New York Times. If you could just scroll to, yeah, that quote there. He said during a call with donors, Quote, you have basically three people at this point that are credible in this whole thing. This is DeSantis talking to donors on a call. Um, Biden, Trump, and me. And I think of those three, two have a chance to get elected president. Biden and me, based on all the data in the swing states, which is not great for the former president and probably insurmountable because people aren't going to change their view of him. So I understand what he's saying, where Biden obviously has a chance to win. He beat Trump before. He's the incumbent. All of that. But DeSantis, what he's trying to say is you either are going to have um, most likely something crazy could happen and hopefully doesn't. The polling has been kind of concerning recently where Trump could, if he got the nomination, win. That would be disaster. We'll do everything to make sure it doesn't happen. But most likely just from a political analysis point of view, based on everything that Trump is wrapped up in, it would be really hard for him to win. He lost to Biden before and everything that's happened since. Um so then you think, okay, so then maybe a more baggage-free Republican, more moderate Republican could win. Yeah, maybe. But the issue is, Josiah, as uh, you were just noting, the way that DeSantis is trying to set himself apart from Trump is not by saying, I'm the more moderate guy. He's trying to kind of say, I'm more uh, of a traditional politician, maybe, and I don't have the baggage. But he's running to the right of Trump or trying to on policy to say to the MAGA base, which you'll have to get some of to be the nominee right now because of how MAGA the Republican Party is. Um, he's saying, I'm even more radical on the issue of abortion, for example. Now, Trump has had, to this point, the most devastating impact on abortion rights with his nominations of the justices that led to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But DeSantis signed a six-week abortion ban into law. Trump hasn't clearly said that he's supportive of a six-week abortion ban when asked about it. And now DeSantis is publicly, I covered this on the show recently, criticizing uh, Trump for not saying he would support a six-week abortion ban. And if the primary becomes Trump and DeSantis trying to argue over who is more far right and taking stances on that, then in the general, even if DeSantis were somehow able to win, he would be so closely associated with the most unpopular parts of American politics, including a six week abortion ban. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, that's the, I, I don't know what adjective I'm looking here because I almost said beautiful Dumb. No, okay. it, it, because in some Sorry. ways it is from just a political analysis perspective, but it's also quite dangerous too, because the Republican party, despite its lack of popularity and despite the lack of popularity and efficacy of its re uh, uh, record and the policies it proposes, it's still a threat to the United States. So what I'm about to say, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it is interesting that the Republican Party has escalated to the extent that to win a primary, especially against somebody like Trump, you got to go as radical right as it gets to try to steal MAGA from him. Yeah. But that is a mutually exclusive proposition to winning an election. The tactic that, at least on paper right now, will let you win a primary is the thing that will cost you the general.
And that is something of the Republican Party's own making. They are being hoisted by their own petard. So obviously, no sympathy for them whatsoever. They had every chance Mm. before Trump, during Trump, and even in the immediate aftermath of Trump to turn and say, listen, even if it costs us some elections for the foreseeable future, we need to do some serious introspection, some serious accountability, excise, purge this, this instinct towards fascism and derangement that Trump manifested, and let's go back to being a more serious party, and then maybe we'll get some long-term gains. But that's not what they did. And I think we're seeing DeSantis try to straddle these lines because he's going to have to present himself to the 49 other states outside of Florida. That's the other thing. Like I know Florida is a very populated state, but there's the rest of the country to consider. How on earth Ron DeSantis of you know, Disney feuding Florida, six week abortion ban Florida. How are you possibly going to make a sales pitch to Wisconsin, to California, to where, I mean, whatever, even just the swing states, how can you possibly do that? Yeah. And what you were saying about the Republican party, they've had every chance to run away from this, to decide not to do what DeSantis is doing in Florida, just recently signing a ban on gender-affirming care for minors that includes the ability of the state to take away children from their families, party of family values, children from their families if they're receiving gender-affirming care. Um, that, and and that being the direction that the GOP is going, is because of step after step that was obviously heading in this direction, being allowed by the rest of the GOP for so long. So now, one of the things that's funny about DeSantis' campaign is he's having a really hard time, even just his pre-campaign, deciding how does he approach Trump. He doesn't want to criticize him aggressively because, as you said, you need um, to kind of sell yourself to the MAGA base as well and also maybe get some other people and all of that. And so he's not actually criticizing Trump aggressively, except for a little bit here and there. And he'll allude to things because he's so terrified of Trump's movement. And that conundrum, that situation that Sands will have to deal with and likely his embarrassing loss to uh, Trump is because of what he allowed to happen, what other Republicans allowed to happen, him kissing up to Trump. Um, in the ways that he has for so long. That is on you, Republican Party. And now, if the rest of the country can work hard enough and get us through this scary moment, it's going to be the reason that the Republican Party ends up losing time and time again. Hopefully, that's my prediction. And whenever you're regretting that, whenever it's feeling horrible, Republicans, whenever it's just brutal that you can't get rid of Trumpism, you made the bed. Absolutely. Um, the, the the only two things I'll add to that are because it just now hit me. There was a the recent uh, election in Jacksonville, the Jacksonville, uh, Florida. You know, one of the most populous states in the country, the highest popular, excuse me, cities in the country, mm. and one of the most uh, the only the highest populated city that was governed by a Republican mayor. There we go. They mm. lost. A Democrat is now the mayor of Jacksonville, yeah. and that is in the heartland of Florida, right? That is that's Ron DeSantis Nation. So that's another thing that he's going to have to answer for to the public. Hey, you talk about winning and how you're such a winner. Why is it that in your state, the most populous city in your state, which you supposedly have on lock, your candidate, the candidate not only that is Republican, but the DeSantis endorsed and backed, how did that candidate lose? Well, that is where we will end it today uh, or 
on this show. We're actually going to come out with a whole nother show, me and Josiah, um, later today for you to make up for some of the lost content due to what Josiah has experienced. It's the most enraging technical problems you could possibly imagine. I almost destroyed everything in this in this studio earlier. It's been a disaster, but now hopefully everything's working. Luke, and we come, will come on. Out. It, admit we, it. Admit it. This is really just an opportunity for you and I to do some more bonding. This is <laughs> you you there are more shows for us, more opportunity to banter back. Folks, don't let him fool you. Okay. This is this is a bromance in action right now. You're witnessing it. <laughs> so he is graciously uh assisting in the production of lots more content for you. That'll come out in just a bit. But for now, um, Josiah, you want to hit them with your, your plugs and then we'll go. Absolutely. So again, Luke, I appreciate the invitation, the opportunity to, to unpack this politics with you. You all can find me at youtube.com slash at pondering politics, one word. And I'm looking forward to doing this with you all again. We'll be back with much more very soon.